Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. So as I said, we're going to look at Romans chapter 1. The book of Romans is an incredibly favorite book of mine. Um, Spent seven years going through it as a pastor, and uh, I find myself frequently going back to it in my mind. In Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read for you verses 18 to 32, which is the end of the chapter, but we will look in detail only at verses 28 to 32. Verse 18, Paul writes this, for, that for, by the way, is a very important for, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Why? For this reason, God made it evident to them. What do you mean by that, Paul? For this reason, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that what was or what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. For what purpose? That their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, uh, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they, only, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. 
May the Lord bless his word. In Romans chapter 1, what we have is really the descent of man. Romans 1 shows how God interacts with us as people, but also how he interacts with nations. Now, starting in verse 16, verses 1 through 15 is really uh, a, an introduction of his own, uh, in his own way to what he's going to be writing to the people at Rome. And starting in verse 16, he then gives the reason for what he has just written in verses 1 through 15, which is about the fact that he has been called with the gospel and for the gospel of God. So he says, for this reason, I am not ashamed of what the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? For in it, the righteousness or faithfulness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And it is there then that he then explains why it's so critical to know the gospel, why it is so critical for him to preach the gospel, and why he is not ashamed of that gospel. He is saying that the reason I'm not ashamed of it is, one, it's the power of God, but two, because mankind is in a seriously bad place. The wrath of God is flowing, rolling down out of heaven constantly, incessantly upon humanity. God has revealed that wrath, and mankind is guilty of constantly suppressing it. When you read verses 18 to 32, I think that it is frightening to read because we see how complacent we can be and how hard our hearts can be about the things of God. And it's my prayer that we will see the Spirit move in in our midst as individuals and even as a church and that we would become all the more sober-minded. I think over the last year, one of the great blessings that 2020 brought to us as a church is a sense that there is something intrinsically broken in our nation. Not not something that we will only theologically acknowledge, but that we're seeing that work itself out. And we're watching it unveil itself now here in 2021 with alarming speed. I think for many people, they are realizing something is going on. And how then do we prepare for that? What I want you to see is that we all have this great need for the gospel. Now look back at verse 18 again, because I need to remind you of something. He, he says that the wrath of God is being revealed against heaven, against all, and then he uses two terms here, ungodliness and unrighteousness. These are not the same terms. They don't mean the same thing. And it's important that you understand it, because really, rest of uh, chapter 1 breaks itself down into those two terms. Ungodliness is, is a very interesting term. It's a favorite of mine to describe our great need of salvation, because many people will say to me that they have not done that, be- that much bad. They're not really that guilty of great evil, and I won't even debate with them. Now, you could but I won't even bother to debate with most people on that because it's unnecessary. The real reality is that what brings the wrath of God against mankind is ungodliness. And ungodliness simply means this, that you give no thought of God or no thought toward God, if you wish. In other words, that you are functionally an atheist. 
Now think about what ungodliness, because we tend to say that an ungodly man or woman is, is a really wicked individual. But in reality, an ungodly man or woman is in fact possibly an exceedingly nice, kind individual. One who would be, you would like to have as your neighbor or as your boss or coworker or friend or spouse. These are pleasant people. These can be very nice people, but they are ungodly, meaning that they essentially function in their life without a thought for God. And this is the state of humanity, is that we go about our business as people and we do not consider God. I have been told over the years, and and I think that our church does this well, uh, where we, we say, Lord willing, some of you newer here may notice that a lot of people from Missio will add the, the, the term Lord willing to what we are saying. And it comes out of James where he rebukes them and says, you say that you will go to such and such a city, conduct business, make a profit and return. He said, but instead you ought to say Lord willing or if the Lord wills, I will do this. But instead he says you boast and such boasting is great evil. Think about how often you say without a thought, honey, I'm going to go run and pick up milk. Honey, I'm going to get some eggs. Honey, we're going to have X happen. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. We're going to go on this vacation. On and on. All day long, you and I order our lives assuming that our plans shall come about. And never for some people at least, never does it come to mind if the Lord wills. It's not legalism for me to want us to learn to say Lord willing. It is the awareness that God is present and God's will is always going to overwhelm our will. Ungodliness is simply refusing to say that. I have listened to many a good, uh, a pleasant individual who is a Christian say, Matt, I think you're making that a little too rigorous, a little legalistic. I don't think you really need to say Lord willing. I'm like, okay, but then what does James mean? What does it mean for us to acknowledge God's will in our lives? The fact that God's way is what will unfold. How often do I find myself counseling individuals as they, they are moving forward with their plans and, I, and they're worried, is this right or wrong? And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. Just hold it loosely because you do not what, know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know. Lord willing, this will come about. Lord willing. An ungodly individual then is just simply one who doesn't think about God. And may I say that there are many Christians who function more like an ungodly individual than a godly one. Now, the result of all of that is that there's also unrighteousness. Unrighteousness we'll get to in a second, but but it is this idea then that there's this rejection of God in their thinking. They just don't bring them up. So much so that he even brings up, you notice near the end of this chapter, the issue of homosexuality. And people use this passage to speak against homosexuality, which is fine, but that's not the point. What Paul is actually showing in Romans 1 about, uh, in verses 26 and 27 is not homosexuality is an extra bad sin. What he is saying is that is as unnatural as not acknowledging God. Get that. 
It is as unnatural for homosexuality to exist as it is for you and I to live without thinking about God. God has put in our hearts a knowledge of him. We know him because he has made himself known to us through creation and within our own hearts so that we are without excuse. And then what do we do? We turn around and reject that and suppress that and live as if he doesn't exist. And he says, that is no different than homosexuality. It is unnatural. It is not the way it ought to be. So homosexuality here becomes just simply a very uh, simple, poignant illustration of what's wrong with all of us. Then he also mentions unrighteousness, which is simply being against righteousness, against justness. It speaks of those who not only reject God by forgetting about him, but then who in turn commit sin or rebel against his ways. This speaks of a flow of events that are consistently true in the lives of people as well as nations. And you see it really going on in America today. There's a rejection of God. There's a rejection of his glory and his majesty. And then comes unrighteousness, which is the fruit. So what you see happening in our neighborhoods, our cities, our states, and our nation is really just fruit. It didn't just happen. What has happened is that there's this long, long period of time of actively rejecting and ignoring and, and pushing away God in ungodliness, and that, as a result, comes the fruit, which is unrighteousness. Why? Or so what happens is God's wrath becomes revealed because God has watched people turn their hearts from him, and they commit evil acts which offend him. So today what I want to break down are three basic points in our verses, which is only uh, at the very end of the chapter, 28 to 32. We're going to see the act of God, the purpose behind God's action, and the final judgment of God. And no, there are no notes for this, so you actually have to do this old school. The act of God, the purpose behind God's action the final judgment of God. There was a man named Dr. John Gerstner, who was a professor of theology. He was teaching on on what's called the depravity of mankind, which is simply to state that every aspect of, of humanity, meaning our bodies, our minds, our will, our emotions, every aspect of what makes us human is stained indelibly with sin. And so in making this point, he, he noted that uh, he, co- he made this comparison between men and women and rats. And at the end of his, uh, his lecture, he opened it up for a Q&A, and somebody, this is many years ago, you can see it happening much quicker today, somebody raised their hand and expressed that they were deeply offended that they would be compared with a rat. And they asked him to please apologize. And he said, you're right. I do apologize. In fact, I apologize profusely because the comparison was terribly unfair to the rats. And they then went on to simply say this. He's like, a rat does what a rat does because God made him that way. In fact, when a rat acts like a rat, 
he's honoring God. He's doing what was cre- he, he was created to be. But when man and woman act like so-called rats, all they are doing is showing their rebellion against their creator. In other words, he says, we are worse than the beasts in our behavior. And this passage shows it. So let's look, first of all, in verses uh, 28 to 32, the act of God. I want you to notice this because this this is very, very humbling and very sobering, what actually is said here versus how we tend to read it. He says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Now, if you have a pencil, this is what you would want to do. God gave them over. That's the verb. That's the main verb. That's the point. God gave them over. God gave them over. Notice that the first point of this message is what God did. God's act. The act of God. God gave them over. Well, how you'll oftentimes hear this sermon or this passage preached is that God let them. God allowed them. But that's not what it is. It's not God passively taking his hands off and saying, well, you do whatever it is you want to do. My hands are tied. I can't do it. It is an active work of God giving humanity over. It's a very intense verb. It's used of giving up one's body to be burned, three times of Christ giving himself up to death. It's used in a judicial sense of man uh, being committed to prison or to judgment, being given over to chains or given over to hell. This is used of the rebellious angels being delivered to pits of darkness. It's used of Christ committing himself, giving himself over to his father's care and of the fathers delivering his own son to be our perfect sacrifice. Those were not passive moments. Those are active moments of of giving over. And so to hear, you need to understand that, that, that what happened is because they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over. It's a judicial act where God, as our creator and as our Lord, has judged us as humanity where he has judged us and has given us over to a depraved mind. In fact, the mind here does not simply talk about our intellectual part, but it involves that moral reasoning and will of man. The will and the moral core of humanity. He is looking at the whole of humanity The whole of humanity, billions of people. And he says that God has given them over to a depraved mind. By God, this has been done. And it's here that many will stumble. For many people think that this goes against what we're taught in our lives. That man is somehow inherently good, right? Man has 
if we, if we give mankind a chance that they will essentially do the right thing. In fact, if you were to look at a person and see him like an onion and just strip away the various layers, at the very core, eventually, you're going to come to that core, that spark of goodness. But God says, no, you strip away the onion and you come down until all you find is depravity. And then we tend to teach that God is somehow helplessly sitting by the side as we go about and do these bad things. He, he kind of wishes we wouldn't. We kinda, he kind of hopes we would stop and maybe make this world a better place. But that's not what it says, beloved, is it? It's not what it says. God gave them, actively gave them over to a depraved mind. And this is an act of judgment. Now the word depraved comes from a word that means to test or to approve something. So when you think about a depraved mind, you're like, okay, it's rotten and sick. But it's actually, it's a mind that's been tested. What it means is that God has tested the mind of mankind, both as a whole and as individuals, and it fails. It fails to meet his standard. Man's mind, your mind, my mind, apart from God's intervention, we are broken and depraved. Or as Jeremiah says in his prophecy, the heart is more deceitful than all else. Just get your head around that. You can think of many things that you would call evil, many things deceitful, many things that are depraved and broken. And I'm sure that you can think of many things like that. But Jeremiah says, oh, oh, you see that great evil? You see that great evil? He says, I'll tell you what is worse than any of that. And that is your heart and mine. The only hope for mankind is that their mind could be opened. When, when the very wellspring of what we are and what we do is depraved, then what hope do we have? The only hope we can have is that God works, God intervenes. And this would be done by the Spirit, that they would be able to see and believe in Jesus for salvation. And in fact, the effects of this judgment of God here in this verse is so great that even after salvation, there is this constant need to grow and renew our minds because there's this ever-present push the other way. I'll develop that in my next sermon more, much more fully, but it's understand that, that even after you're a Christian, you and I all know, if you're a Christian here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is not hard to slide backwards. It is not hard to go the wrong way. All you have to do is stop fighting for just a second. What we do is we lie to ourselves and we think that we're okay, that we're having some minor victories. We think they're major victories, but they're really minor victories in our life. And we're overcoming this sin and we're getting better there. And so we can relax. We can take a deep breath and we can just kind of relax because it's been a, a fight. 
And in that time of relaxation, what we don't know is that, and understand is that the flesh, that sinful tendency that's still present within us, ever pushes us the other way. And so all of that ground, so to speak, that we gained, we find out in a few days or a few weeks when sin gets ugly in, in their face, that we find that we have lost all that ground and we have to fight back again. We, have, we don't understand as Christians that our battle against the sin within us is a daily battle that we constantly must fight. So understand that the act of God is an act of judgment upon the mind. Not, not just the body, but the mind of mankind. But why? What was the purpose? Well, that's the second point. What's the purpose? And so they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. So God gave them over to a depraved, depraved mind. And then that little phrase, to do. That's the purpose. Those two little words, to do, it's actually just one word in the Greek. It's, it's called in the fancy words, an infinitive of purpose. An infinitive of purpose, meaning he's now going to show you the purpose. Why would God do this? Why would God give mankind over to a depraved, broken, sick mind? This is the reality of the wrath of God. He has given us over to a depraved mind for the purpose to do those things which are not proper. That's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. The reality of the God's wrath is this, that in the here and now, that he gives us over to this sick, depraved mind so that we commit deeds of unrighteousness. So that we will commit those things or as it says here, things that are not proper. Now, what is it that caused this to happen? And I want you to listen carefully here. It's important that you hear this. What causes this to happen? Well, in verse 28, it's a very full verse. First of all, you need to understand that they did not value God as they ought to value him. Remember what we read in verses 18 all the way up to verse 28. That though they knew God, they did not acknowledge God as God. So God gave them over. That they exchanged the glory of God for the corruptible glory of the creature. Fill in the blank how you want. You want to worship an idol made of gold? Fine, you can worship the idol made of gold, God says. But you can also worship money. You can also worship health. You can worship anything under the world. It's all in this realm of creation. And what mankind has done is that they have exchanged the glory of God for this cheap glory. And all of this brings forth then this giving over to a depraved mind. Now, what is it? How is that done? To see him as of supreme glory and of the supreme value is what our calling is. That's what we are made to do. So much so that every person living knows of God and knows what he is and who he is. The Bible makes that clear here. 
They have no excuse. No man, no woman will ever stand before God and say, I didn't know. He will simply unveil for that person their own heart that God made. And on that day of judgment, he will show them you knew it and you suppressed it. You fought against it in your heart and in your mind. You shoved it out of your way because it intruded on what you wanted. And they will be found with no excuse. This is the essence of ungodliness, that rejection of the glory of God in our minds. We simply ignore him. And so this leads to a play in words in the Greek. It says, because he did not keep God in their minds, in fact, they saw him as an annoyance and a, rather a pain, pain in the neck, God gives them over to a sick mind. They won't acknowledge God in their minds, so he gives them over to a broken mind. So with all of that, he then says that we are now filled He now shifts into this world of unrighteousness, these evil deeds. We are now, in verse 29, filled with all unrighteousness. Being filled means exactly what it sounds like, filled up to the fullness. With all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. These are really what I would describe broad or foundational sins that drive much of what we do as sinners. Evil is just that, a nice broad term. It means to delight in the harm of others. Just be mean. How many of you, I don't want to see your hands, but how many of you with children, small children, have not witnessed where a sister or brother is just mean? Just mean. And you're like, where'd that come from? And then if you're honest and you look in your own life, you remember when you were that way. Or more likely, because really we are all about ourselves, right? We remember when our brother or sister was that way toward us. Just that sense of meanness. Where does that flow from, beloved? From where is that coming? It comes from this depraved mind that God has given. Paul moves into sins against our fellow man then, where he says that it's unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, and they are gossips, etc. We start with this rejection of God. This is where it always starts. We start with a rejection of God, and it always ends up to an abuse of man. Why? Because mankind, we are image bearers. So if we will not acknowledge God, then why would we acknowledge those who bear his image? I want you to think about that because it will explain a whole lot about what you're seeing flowing out of the White House today. But don't don't make this about the White House. I'm just saying, when you watch what's going on, where you watch abortion being exalted to the highest degrees right now in, in our federal government, And people are cheering it and and applauding it. Why? Why is it that this murder of the innocents is so well received? Beloved, it flows because they, first of all, have long since stopped ever acknowledging God. And because they will not acknowledge God, they will not acknowledge the image of God in us. They can't. They won't. There's no value there. 
In fact, it's all about convenience. And no amount of lawmaking will change that. I'm not here to say that we shouldn't pass laws prohibiting. I'm just saying the law cannot change what the mind has already determined. There is no value there. We must understand and come to believe fully that sin is and always shall be a destroyer, that it never fulfills, it never repairs, it never brings life. In it is death. Again, notice how he uses the word full, full of envy, full of envy. Different word actually in the Greek, but it, it, it really describes that which completely characterizes something. That this is what we are full of. That when you say, well, what am I full of? Apart from the grace of God in my life through the gospel, what am I full of? What is my wife full of? What are my children full of? And you will tell me all day long, they're sweet, they're good. Oh, pastor, they're just a little tired. No, what they are is they're full of something. And it's not good. They're fully characterized with envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, Gossip, slander, hater of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents. That's what we're full of. That's what humanity is full of. It's a very sobering passage. There's nothing fun in this passage. Envy is such a common sin among mankind. No one here, in fact, can honestly say that you've not committed the sin of envy. And at the core of it, though, it's always going to be found in God because envy says, I'm dissatisfied with what God has given to me. In fact, we are all a people who are never truly satisfied in ourselves. We always want more. We think we deserve more. And we cast our eyes about looking for more. And when we find where more is and other people possess it, we are envious, right? The whole argument of redistribution of wealth is envy. That's all it is. It's just envy. But it sounds and it's being couched in terms of justice. No, it's envy. It's just simple envy. You have, I don't have, I want, you must give. We can either take it at gunpoint or we can do it through the passage of laws, but it's still envy. And then you look at those people who are now in power, And you say, I don't like that they're in power, and you become envious of their power. I mean, it's just this sick little treadmill that we're all on. The difference is that we think our treadmill is the more righteous of the treadmills, but they're both cranking out the same stuff. Well, murder, when he talks about murder, we know what murder is. But we must remember that murder does not occur only at the death of an individual, but at this point where we become angry at a person. Christ made that very abundantly clear in Matthew 5.21, that when you hate your brother, you have committed murder. It's interesting that in the Greek New Testament, envy and murder are very similar in their sound. The only difference between the two words in Greek is a T-H sound. T-H. So one commentator says this, that there's only a breath. 
There's only a breath between envy and murder. That's a good line. James 4.2 says it this way, you lust and envy, you do not obtain, so you what? Commit murder. Deceit. Anyone need to know what deceit is? It means lies. It doesn't have to be words, does it? But anything that's designed to deceive a person is simply that. From there, he begins to bring out the sins that are born out of a heart of pride. The first is that great evil called gossip. The word, uh, it's hard to pronounce, um, but the word is, um, in the Greek, it literally sounds like like you're whispering. We have it, whisp. That's, that's that same concept. The word itself kind of pictures that idea of what we're doing. We're whispering to each other. And you see it and you know it. And some people are just given to that sin where every time they talk, invariably, they have to go into other people's business. The second is a very close relative to gossip, and that's slander. The, 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 the word there in the Greek, how it gets broken down is this. It's... It's this uh, preposition kata, and then laleo, which is to speak, and then so kata laleo. Laleo is to speak, kata means against. So you can see how it just works. Slander is where you speak against an individual. You've, you've seen that again. Somebody brings up a person. Maybe you're talking about your husband. Maybe you're talking about your wife. Maybe you're talking about your neighbor, whatever it might be. You're talking about them. And, and the name comes up, and you immediately begin to speak against them. Oh, you, 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 you should know this. Oh, I've heard, and, and on and on and on. It's, it's a close cousin to gossip, but not quite gossip. Long, long time ago, I still remember the first time I taught this uh, here. What's the difference between gossip and slander? Well, gossip tends to be speaking things that we believe to be true about the person, all right? That's things that we've heard that are supposedly true about the person with the intention of harming them somehow. So we're going to talk about how Matt Henry is this, and Matt Henry very well might be that. Well, we're going to talk about it, but not for any purpose of helping Matt, not be a faithful friend who wounds, right? We're going to speak about Matt Henry so that we can harm him, but we're going to speak the truth because, you know, we love truth. And usually it's so that we can feel better about ourselves at somebody else's expense. Slander is not quite the same thing. It's speaking something about a person that is false. So gossip, you're you're speaking against an individual about what's true. Slander is simply speaking about somebody something that is false. And of course, there's overlap, but I think you can see the difference. Then in verse 30, he also brings up this term insolent. It's a type of pride that's of the worst sort, actually. It's a terrible sin. In fact, let me, before I even say that, One of the hardest things as a parent to root out in your home is lies, right? 
If you've ever had to deal with that, when you catch your child in a lie and then you start to realize that your child is given to lies, how do you address that? How do you address that? How do you deal with that? Because this child has learned that lying is a very convenient way around things. And, and if, you're, if you're a faithful parent, it, it, it rips you to shreds. It breaks your heart because all of a sudden you no longer know if you can trust that child with anything they say. And then they become embittered toward you because you don't trust them. Why don't you trust them? Then you are made to feel guilty. And so you start to trust them. And then you find out later on that that was a lie and, and the whole mess. And then next thing you know, they're catapulted out into the world and they're out of your house. And you watch your son, your daughter live a life built around lies, right? You can't, how do you break that? Well, insolence is a similar like type sin. It's that, you, you, you all know what it looks like. It's that glare, right? Have you ever seen it when you told your, tell your child, go clean up the toys, it's time for bed, and they get that pouty face? Free parenting. We had zero tolerance for that in our home. Zero. The moment that insolent face where it's like, you are intruding into my freedom, came. They met the wall of death known as dad. Because I can't let it take root in my home. I can't. I I, I can't. You can't. Insolence. It's It's that anger, that pride of how dare you. And it leads, if it's unchecked, it leads to violence. You'll see it. You'll watch it with your children. Just children are so good because they, they're not as gifted at hiding their sins like you and I as big people, right? They're just kind of out there. And you watch that child where, let's say, they, their, their brother picks up a toy and magically that toy now becomes the most important object in all of humanity. I must have that toy. I'm looking at a few of you younger guys and you're grinning. You're like, yeah, you know, I must have it. And, and mom and dad, you see that, and you're like, hey, share with your brother. The worst words ever to a kid. Share. I don't want to share. Right? And then you watch that insolent face where it's the, they, the eyes narrow, the face, and they just... And if you are not given to addressing that right away... It's not uncommon that next thing you know, hair's pulled, somebody's punched, something snatched, and violence just unfolds. Well, any of you who are police officers here know how that works itself out in big people's lives, right? And, and just the violence that works out because of an insolent heart. Parents, never, never, never can you righteously tolerate that in your home. The moment you see your child take on an insolent spirit, you go at it and you go at it hammer and tongs and you never stop giving up on it. You address it and you assault it with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also the standards and expectations of a Christian home. What's fascinating, he says, is they're boastful, they're arrogant. They're inventors of evil. That, that one's a fascinating one. 
They literally come up, humans come up with new ways to sin. New ways to express that rebellion against what God has called us to be. We're never content with what we have. Once we go into that sin, and you all know that reality in your own life too, that you you are feeling like mom and dad have kept you from something that's truly enjoyable, if only. And so then finally, and rebellion, or because you're out of a home and nobody's there to watch you, you begin to partake of whatever that is. And, and for a while there, you feel satiated. See, I knew I was missing that. But then that fails to satiate you, and you continue to look for new ways and new ways. And you discover as you go, go wandering, especially now with the internet, it's at, a, at your fingertip. You are shocked, maybe, at first, at the different things that people do. But you also find yourself strangely intrigued. One of the things that just stunned me was when I was a jail chaplain and just talking and counseling some of these, these individuals, we, we, I was responsible for what's called supermax. And so this, this is where the really nasty ones went. And, and sometimes they'd seek to, to have counsel from the chaplain. That was me. So I'd have them come to my office and we would talk. And I would just be, just be stunned at the things they would casually, flippantly discuss. And it's like, how twisted is this? And then going out as a police officer and you start going into different places and you're like, where, where, where does that even enter your mind? But what's also bothered me is as a police officer how I became comfortable with those things. Not in my own life, but, but just comfortable with them. I mean, after you've walked over four inches of filth on a carpet that you can't see a few times, you don't even notice it. After you see girls raped a few times, they become just a report. In fact, a very painful, long report that you're really annoyed because you have to take the rape report right near the end of your shift and you want to go home. And somehow the depravity of it all has been lost. Inventors of evil is something humans are incredibly good. And then what's shocking to me is disobedient to parents. It's like, where did that come from? One of the commandments is to honor your mother and your father. And it's repeated again in the New Testament. And one of the marks of, of us being given over by God to a depraved mind is the fact that we disobey our parents. It's not humorous, it's not funny, it's not cute. When you tell your child sit, they should sit. When you tell your child to get dressed, they should get dressed. And they should not give you lip, they should not give you attitude. And as a Christian home, anytime they do, you, as a righteous man or woman, you address that. You say, well, that's not going to make them saved. That doesn't matter. Your home is a Christian home, and you address that. And you use that as a foil to show them their need of a savior. Disobedient to parents. Something we actually say is normal, God says, is evidence of a depraved mind. Then he gets into this list of uh, uns, un, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Untrustworthy simply means a covenant breaker. In other words, you can't trust them. You can't trust them to keep their word, their vows, their contract. 
whatever it might be. And again, you know what this is like. Unloving is actually, unloving is a very sad word. It it means without natural feelings. It's often used with regard to the natural feelings that one family member has for another. And we see this with the advent of open love and joy over abortions. I remember sitting at McDonald's one day a few years ago, and there was a group of uh, teens, and they were eating, and they were being rather loud, and so I could easily listen to what they were saying, much to my chagrin. And one of them just started laughing about her friend. She's like, yeah. She's like, you know, she, 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 she uh, all of a sudden started hurting, and this whole time she's laughing, and she says, and then the baby came out and was just dangling there between her legs, and she said she just kicked it. And they all thought that was uproariously funny. That's what unloving produces. It's just that, that coldness. And as the judgment of God advances on people, but let me say it this way, as God's judgment advances upon a nation like America, that's what you see. That's what you see unfolding before you, beloved. It's not, it's not something like, where are we, what happened? How are we going to turn this back? It's God at work in our nation. We think somehow that these things are happening in some vacuum and that, that God is out there and then our nation, and we just need to come back to God. We don't understand God is actively in our nation doing these things in judgment. This is what judgment looks like. It's ugly and it's evil. And we begin to devour each other. This heart of unlovingness is is something I saw as a police officer. I I didn't understand until I became a police officer because in my city we had a lot of Asian gangs. And in the Asian society, uh, respect and honor of mother and father was in, was huge. And so the way that the gangs in, in our area would bring you into their gang, they required you to commit a major crime against your family. That was raping your mother, murdering your cousin, some kind of a major crime against your own family. They made you have to break that tie with your, your family so that you could become part of a new family. And the act of it was an act of unlove. All of that lurks under the surface of all humans. Now in verse 32, then we come to the final judgment of God, the last point. And it's here that Paul sums it all up. This whole section of 18 to 31, he sums up. He shows that the sinfulness of man is absolutely total. He makes four very specific declarations that we'll look at very quickly. Although they know the ordinance of God, that's the first one, that man has an inner knowledge of sin. All right, that they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. So the ordinance is simply a rule or a law designed to control your actions. The knowledge is not a vague knowledge. It's an actual experiential knowledge, a vibrant knowledge. 
And all Paul is doing is he's showing the hardness of our hearts, that there's this awareness of what is true and absolutely right and wrong. And if your children or your spouse tells you otherwise, they're lying to you and themselves. This is the basis, in fact, for all governments. This is why even unrighteous governments still have right and wrong. There's still a judgment that occurs because in our hearts, there is this knowledge that things are not right. But in corrupted man, they always end up corrupting these actions. Second, man has this inner knowledge then that God will judge sin. They understand that when we practice these things, we're worthy of death. That there is a judgment in, in breaking the law of God. That this judgment is very extreme because it's death. And kit again, that's very intriguing for me because so many countries seek to eliminate the death penalty. Now, why? People say there's no place for that in, the, in a Christian nation. Actually, in a Christian nation, there would always be a place for that. That's established in Genesis 9, but it is the reality that these things are worthy of death, that there is something worthy of death. And that the further away you get away from God and the acknowledgement of God, the further away you get from even expressions of punishing wickedness in that way. Why? Because we're trying to push from our minds that which we cannot push away, and that is the presence of God and judgment. The third thing that it shows us is that they continue in their sin. They practice such things and are worthy of death. They not only do the same, that he will continue in the, the sin. Again, that they will just keep going over and going over the same stuff that without the Spirit of God changing, nothing will change in the heart and lives of people or nations. You can see this as an illustration with the drug addict, right? No matter how many times they shed tears and promise you that they're going to change and different, the reality is until something radical happens, they aren't going to change. Well, that's true of all of us with sin, And then the fourth thing that we see is that they also give hearty approval to those who practice these things. The the sad reality is that mankind, left to itself, encourages the other people to do the same thing. It's written in such a way as to show that this is the greater of the sins. We've all committed this. We've all done it. We've done it with our brothers and our sisters. We've done it with our friends. Come on. You're not going to make me go there all by myself. Come on, it'll be fun. And then we pat them on the back as they commit sin. The person who commits evil can at least argue that it was an act of passion for the moment. It's still wrong. It's still inexcusable, but they could argue that. But the problem is that we also then turn around and and approve others as they commit it. To watch others do it. Let me show you a simple way of how we give hearty approval. Um, this is low-hanging fruit, so it's very simple. But I think about how you wrote, uh, Grayson, in your blog about the Game of Thrones, right? And, and just overt pornography 
in this show. And, and what was shocking and heartbreaking was how many individuals claiming Christ to read his blog protested that he was being small-minded and, and legalistic with his statement that watching this kind of stuff is sinful and inexcusable for a Christian. Now, what they didn't grasp is that by turning it on and by watching it, they were giving hearty approval of it. It's not a joke. We do it. And this is why we see the truth of Jesus' statement that mankind has as its father, the devil. He knows he's guilty. He knows he is facing judgment, but he continues to encourage others to do their sin. And all the while, we as individuals and as nations fill up ourselves to the fullness of God's wrath. There's a favorite passage. Now let me draw all this away and let me now bring a little bit of hope. Actually, it's a lot of hope, but in a little bit of time. A favorite passage of mine is in Ephesians 2. You can turn there, Ephesians 2, 1. But I'll just read it for you. And I want you to see that it's really a summary statement of what Paul has said in Romans 1. Paul is not actually done here. He deals with this in great detail in Romans 1. Then he shifts to the religious individual in chapter 2, and he rips them to shreds. And then he takes both the, the pagan and the religious person in chapter 3, and he lumps them all together. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And finally, in chapter 3, midway through it, he gives them hope. So Paul in Romans takes two and a half chapters to get to hope. In Ephesians, he just takes a few verses. But listen to what he says in 1 through 3. It's really a summary statement of what he said in Romans 1. And he said to the people of Ephesus, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that means Satan, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's a summary of what he just said, right? Where's the hope? The hope is in the very next verse. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have a nation that's dead and we are a nation of people who are dead in our sin. We are a people given over to a depraved mind. And in the midst of that, God continues to exercise that divine but, if you will, but God. God continues to take people 
who walk in their own ways with no awareness. They never even thought of God. They, they, they gave no care for God. And if they did, he was something to laugh about or a mere intrusion in the mind that they would shove away in a moment so they would go about their business. And then God, in his rich mercy, intrudes upon their heart and their life, and he reveals what their heart is, and he points them to his son, which is the way of salvation. God did not have Paul write these things so that we would have no hope, but rather he caused us to read and, and, and Paul to write these things so that we would find out where our only hope can be. It is always going to be in the grand message of Jesus Christ, who is both King and Savior, that he is our sin conqueror, that he is that perfect sacrifice who is done that in our place as our substitute, that he has destroyed the power of death, which is in his resurrection, that he is Lord, and that he calls you, every one of you, to come and follow him. So my question is, will you? Let's pray. So Father, a depressing message. But what makes it so depressing in my own mind is that it's also brutally true. There are two groups in this room right now. There are those who are still in the state of a depraved mind, given over to the lusts of their flesh, wandering about, actively denying you. And then there's the other, who by your grace you have opened their eyes to their sin, but even more importantly, opened their eyes to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, open the eyes of those here who do not know Jesus. Let them realize that there is nothing but, but muddy water that they drink every day, thinking it will satisfy them. And let them instead see the hope in Christ, that you, rich in your mercy, sent forth your Son, to be our Savior. Lord, as we go back home and as we watch our nation continue to descend into the very pits of evil and filth, and we shake with rage and we cluck our tongue, I pray instead, Father, that as we see these things and our heart uh, breaks, that we also become filled with gratitude. For but by your grace, we would be giving hearty approval of those things. It is your grace that causes us to be weeping. Let us instead arm ourselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ and go back into the world that has no hope and point them to their only hope in Jesus Christ. I ask in your son's holy name. Amen.